we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast, and this is a special episode. Normally, there is a panel of us, myself and Scott and Paul, and we talk about the events of the week as a weekly news roundup show. But we're on a bit of a holiday at the moment, so I've cobbled together some of the highlights of our old shows, dealing more with topics that are a bit more evergreen rather than just... uh, sort of running out of steam a week after they've appeared. So these are things that I think have some lasting benefits or uh, are worth listening to again for whatever reason, and I've put them together. They come from episodes in uh, January 2018, so episodes 100 and, uh, 128, 129, 130, 131. So... If some of these topics are of interest and you want to look up the links that we talk about, then head over to those episodes and you'll find them in the show notes for those episodes. So uh, sit back and relax. Hope you're enjoying your Christmas holiday. And here's uh, some stuff from the past to keep you entertained. Scott, uh, I love a good theory. Uh, pirate theory is, an, is, is one that is, I've been reading about in this article uh, by this guy... Uh, David Sloan Wilson went to a conference and he also was looking at this book called The Invisible Hook, The Hidden Economies of Pirates. Um, And in it, um, the concept of self-interest and how that works in our society, but sort of and using pirate society as a microcosm of our bigger society and how we as humans uh, think and act. And here we go, Scott. Here are some facts about pirate society that cry out for explanation. Did you get to read this one? I don't know. I see you got into you the did detail. send it to me, but I, no, I, sent it I, to I, I skimmed it. it. I didn't completely read it, yeah. But, you know, we think of uh, pirate societies uh, as pretty vicious societies. But what it says mm. here is, um, famous for their barbarism towards their victims, it's easy to assume that pirates must also be barbarous among themselves, but nothing is further from the truth. Most pirate societies were scrupulously democratic. They voted on who was to be their captain and were quick to vote him out if he didn't perform. They limited the authority of the captain to battle situations and elected another officer, the quartermaster, to oversee the daily round of life on board. The captain and quartermaster received a mere two shares of captured booty compared to one share for each member of the crew. A significant proportion of pirate crews were black, and while some were slaves, others were treated as equals. Pirates created an insurance system for themselves with an agreed-upon payment for the loss of each body part. Um, goes on to say, while their fearsome behaviour towards victims was real, it was highly strategic, uh, um, the aim was to capture ships without fighting, so... They put on a, a pretty ugly front, hoping that people would just give in, is what it would say. And, uh, um, and okay, so then this article sort of goes on to say, uh, 
because remember, Scott, we talked about the chicken breeding yeah. um, exercise, which I thought was really interesting. So just to recap, mm. dear listener, if you were trying to um, breed chickens um, that laid the most number of eggs, you might be inclined to just take the, the, the best breeding chicken and breed from that and look at the progeny and then find the best layer out of that and breed from that. And the problem was that often the best layer was the complete bully who was, in fact, stealing food from the other chickens. And and if you followed that system, you could end up within six or seven generations with a with basically just a bunch of psychopathic chickens. And the other option was to have groups of, say, ten chickens and then breed from the group which best performed because you knew that the members in the group were actually working in harmony with each other. So I actually said that when well, I was at uh, a Christmas function. I met a guy who worked in a chicken farm, Scott, and yeah. he'd, never, he'd never heard of that before. Oh, so, really? Okay. Yeah, it was news to him. Okay. So, um, uh, and the article is making the point that this is the difference between humans and animals to some extent because in most animal societies dominance takes the form of stronger individuals intimidating the weaker these societies would be called despotic in human terms and they provide an inhospitable social environment for cooperation so that's in most animal societies somehow in our distant ancestors, members of groups found ways to collectively suppress disruptive, self-serving behaviours, which provides a more hospitable social environment for cooperation. Um, So if you can't succeed at the expense of others within your own group, the only alternative is to cooperate within your group in competition with other groups, which might take the form of direct competition, such as warfare, or indirect competition, such as surviving during hard times as other groups perish. So this actually um, befuddled Darwin, apparently, with his theory of evolution, Scott. Um, He was forced to develop, because what he looked at was he saw that, that in fact, humans have have developed what's called pro-social behaviours. So a pro-social behaviour is any attitude, behaviour or institution oriented towards the welfare of others or of one's group as a whole. And natural selection that was just based on the individual um, uh, couldn't account for these pro-social behaviours that humans developed. So he had to... um, uh, let me just get to the PDF. For Darwin, the problem he faced was that natural selection among individuals within groups cannot explain the evolution of pro-social behaviours. So according to sort of Darwin's first, you know, thoughts on the subject, we, we should have just grown up to be like the psychopathic chickens where they're just the biggest and strongest and just killing each other. So how did we end up not in that situation? And he added another level of natural selection, um, among groups in a multi-group population. So, um, uh, so yeah, so basically groups came about where people were prepared to make minor sacrifices for themselves in order to benefit 
the whole group and to cooperate. And those groups ultimately become more successful than other groups. So as a group, you can either outfight the uncooperative group or you will have stored enough food and grain uh, because of your cooperative methods that you will survive, you know, plagues or um, bad times. So, so this sort of um, group uh, s- sort of theory of evolution uh, was actually something that Darwin had to address and come up with. So yeah, so so we've we've the sort of the chicken breeding exercise, um, humankind's um, basically. Um, like to form little villages and you had to be cooperative in your village um and yeah it was we uh, sort of evolution became a village versus village thing as much as an individual versus an individual thing so okay yeah so there we go if you're interested in that uh there's the article on it bunch of losers yeah scott and dear listener, this article is from Medium blog site or website claiming that Australia's economy is a house of cards. And this uh, is by um, co-author, uh, who's it by? It's by Matt Burke, co-authored with Craig Tyndall. And this is going to go on for a little while. This is going to take 20 minutes or so, but it's a frightening number of statistics and information and it's basically spelling out doomsday for the Australian economy. So if you want to remain <laughs> blissfully unaware until it happens, then turn off tune out now and see you <laughs> on the next episode. But if you've got any interest in our economy or your own money or your own, your own investments or lack thereof, stay tuned for this. Um, Okay. It is somewhat frightening, isn't it? Oh, it is. So here's yeah. here. I recently watched the Federal Treasurer, Scott Morrison, proudly proclaim that Australia was in surprisingly, surprisingly good shape. Indeed, Australia has just snatched the world record from the Netherlands, achieving its 104th quarter of growth without a recession, making the achievement the longest streak for any OECD country since 1970. On the face of that, you'd think, ScoMo, you're right. We are in good shape. Record growth without a recession. Happy days, we're obviously in. This guy says, I was pretty shocked at the complacency because after 26 years of economic expansion, the country has very little to show for it. A quarter, for over a quarter of a century, our economy mostly grew because of dumb luck. Luck because our country is relatively large and abundant in natural resources resources that have been in huge demand from a close neighbour, namely China. Gives a statistic, by the way, dear listener, there's all charts and statistics and links and supporting footnotes for all of this. Over one third of all merchandise exports from this country go to China. As a whole, our economy has grown through a property bubble, inflating on top of a mining bubble, built on top of a commodities bubble, driven by a China bubble. Unfortunately, the free ride is about to end. Uh, the Chinese banks are looking down the barrel of $1.7 trillion of bad debts. Um, 
and it's going to possibly be four times what the US banking losses were during the subprime crisis. And a hard landing for China is going to be a catastrophe for us. It says that... Uh, let me just go on here to the next highlighted bit. Uh, um, in terms of exports... Um, Steel, of course, is made from iron ore, Australia's biggest export and the, free, and the country's main driver of trade surplus and GDP growth. We're responsible for half the global iron ore exports by value. 81% of our iron ore goes to China. Um, but they don't want it anymore because they don't need it. They've got huge stockpiles. They've got enough iron ore sitting at their ports that they could build 13,000 Eiffel Towers just from what's sitting on the port. In the last six years, the price of iron ore has fallen 60%. So this is our major export we're talking about here. Our second biggest export is coal. Uh, We supply 38% of the world's demand. From 2008 to 2016, our exports increased by 49%, but the value collapsed by 38%. So we're exporting more for less. Um, You've got coking coal for the steel market, which we've already said uh, demands um, falling, and thermal coal for power stations. uh, That, of course, is also uh, demand is dropping because of renewals. Scott? In April 2017, the United Kingdom experienced its first day without burning coal for electricity since the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s. Really? That's incredible, isn't it? It is, yeah. First day without burning coal for electricity. They got their electricity from other things. Um, Our top export market for coal is Japan and There was a little bubble there because of the Fukushima disaster causing them to shut down nuclear reactors and rely more on coal, but that's going to stop. Coal consumption in China is dropping. Um, And blind to the reality of all this, we're ramping up coal production. Uh, So that's iron ore and uh, coal. Oh, 2016 was a year that solar became cheaper than coal, with some countries generating electricity from sunshine for less than three cents per kilowatt hour, which is half the cost of coal power. And by October 2017, wind power has become cheaper than coal in India. It's cheaper for them to produce wind power. Yeah. Um, and half the assets in the global coal industry are held by companies that are either in bankruptcy or don't earn enough to pay their interest bills. Uh, so the coal story is a disaster, and we've got Scott Morrison sitting in Parliament wistfully holding or looking at a lump of coal and saying how great it is for us, but it's all about to go down the tube. Uh, and that's going to cost us $34 billion per annum in the current account with nothing to replace it. It's just going to go. Um, and in all this time, uh, Australian companies... Well, actually, since 2014, Australia's entire mining industry, which is completely dependent on China, has struggled to make any money at all. According to the Bureau of Statistics, the Australian mining industry, 
which includes coal, oil, gas, iron ore, blah, 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 made a... Uh, it had $179 billion in revenue, $171 billion in costs, um, a margin of 3.9%. <laughs> Not making any money. Yeah. Uh, so that's the mining story that we have been relying on. Our manufacturing has totally collapsed, uh, and that's even bef- without taking into account the recent Toyota and Holden closures. Um, our manufacturing as a share of GDP is on a par with places like Luxembourg. We just don't make anything anymore. Mm. Uh, we're just a service economy. Uh, now, where are we getting to? So the question is, if mining's been doing um, so poorly, how have we been managing to survive? And the answer is, well, how have we been getting this growth? The answer is that um, it's the property bubble. Uh, he says here, a bubble that has lasted for 55 years and seen prices increase 6,556% since 1961. That can't be right. Well, that would be, yeah. Making this the longest-running property bubble in the world. In 2016, Scott, 67% of Australia's GDP growth came from uh, the cities of Sydney and Melbourne, um, fueling a runaway housing market. Um, a small area in the Sydney CBD to Macquarie Park, which is in the middle of an apartment building frenzy, contributed 24% of the country's entire GDP growth for 2016. Okay, here's the here's really... To show how crazy our property situation is, Scott, um, they did a study of cranes... Um, uh, 2017 between Sydney Melbourne and Brisbane there are now 586 cranes in operation with a total of 685 across all capital cities 80% of which are focused on building apartments there are 350 cranes in Sydney alone by comparison there are 28 cranes in New York (laughs) <laughs> Sydney, this is the end of 2017, had 350 cranes building, mostly apartment buildings. New York had 28. San Francisco, 24. 40 in Los Angeles. There are more cranes in Sydney than Los Angeles, Washington, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Portland, Denver, Boston, and Honolulu combined. Holy bloody hell. That's Jonathan, ridiculous, isn't Jonathan it? Tepper, one of the world's top experts in housing bubbles. Australia is the only country we know of where middle class houses are auctioned like paintings. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, at the time of the global financial crisis, Australia's households were at 190% debt to net disposable income. Um, that was 50% more than American households. But things went really crazy. The government put further fuel on the fire by streamlining foreign investment review board so that temporary residents could purchase real estate without having to gain or rep- or report a 
approval. Did you know that, Scott? So now it's you, no, I, did, I wasn't aware of that. You, yeah. I didn't. I wasn't aware that you could be a temporary resident and get to, and be able to buy property. Yeah. Yes. So that is what is fueling a lot of the property boom. Um, uh, one could possibly argue that this move was cunningly calculated uh, as what could be possibly wrong in selling overpriced Australian houses to the Chinese. But what it's saying here is that these Chinese are borrowing from Australian banks using fake statements of foreign income. Uh, and often it's not particularly sophisticated Australian banks are being tricked with photoshopped bank statements can, that can be bought online for as little as twenty dollars. So, <laughs> if you're here, if you're a Chinese here on a student visa, you can just photoshop a bank statement. We don't even have to do it yourself. Pay somebody twenty dollars, and you can have some fake bank statements and buy an apartment in Sydney on a temporary visa. This is happening. Uh, our employment. The rise in house prices is not supported by employment or wage increases. Um, Since 2008, the average weekly income has gone up $3 a year. So that's not fueling the increase in housing prices. Uh, It's foreign buying... uh, So what they say, urban planners say that a median house price to household income ratio of of three uh, or under is affordable, okay? So if the house price is 300,000 and the income you have is 100,000, that would be a ratio of three, so that's affordable. Um, Four is moderately affordable, if you get up to five, you're seriously unaffordable. So $500,000 house, $100,000 gross income. Once you're above five, it's severely unaffordable. That's according to urban planners. Um, in Sydney, the current median house price is $1.17 million, and the average household income is 91000 so the ratio is 13, and yeah, in Melbourne, and in so Melbourne it's, it's 9. More than double what's considered unaffordable. Correct. Mm. Um, now, here's the interesting part. Barnaby Joyce recently said, look, houses will always be incredibly expensive if you can see the Opera House and the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Just accept that. What pe- This is Barnaby Joyce. What people have got to realise is that houses are much cheaper in Tamworth Houses are much cheaper in Armadale and houses are much cheaper in Toowoomba. Sound okay on the face of it, Scott? Yeah, but there's no bloody work up there. Well, here's the kicker. For 2017, Tamworth ranked as the 78th most unaffordable housing market in the world. <laughs> the average income is t- in Tamworth is 42900 The average... Uh, Household income is sixty-one thousand, but the average house price is three hundred and seventy-five thousand. So the ratio is six point one, making housing in Tamworth less affordable than Tokyo, Singapore, Dublin, or Chicago. Ooh. Unfortunately for Barnaby, Armadale and Toowoomba don't fare much better. 
out of a total of 406 housing markets tracked globally, um, eight of the 20 least affordable housing markets were in Australia, which, in addition to Sydney and Melbourne, such exotic places as Wingkarari, Wingkarabi, Tweed Heads, the Sunshine Coast, Port Macquarie, the Gold Coast and Wollongong. These are not exotic locations. No, you wouldn't have thought so. So anyway, as we mentioned earlier, uh, Chinese uh, temporary residents can buy apartment buildings on dodgy um, $20 photoshopped bank statements. Um, our big four banks issue 80% of residential mortgages in this country and they're more exposed uh, to these loans than any other banks in the world. Um, 60% of Australian bank loans are residential mortgages. Uh, going through here. Why are governments so keen to inflate housing prices? It's the And the answer is it's the only thing that's stimulating GDP growth. Uh, also, 42% of all mortgages in Australia are interest only, since the average person can't actually afford to pay any principal. Um, so, Scott, the big four banks plus Macquarie are 30% of the ASX 200 index weighting. Ooh. And, you know, a lot of our superannuation goes into the share market and mm -hmm. that's 30% of the share market. Once this episode is recorded, Scott, I'm, I'm going onto my superannuation account and just making sure I've got absolutely no exposure to Australian banks. <laughs> it's, it's going international. <sighs> a bit further on... Um, uh, Oh, yeah. Um, our third largest export, which is $22 billion, is education-related travel services. So um, you now know what all these tin-pot English IT and business colleges that have popped up downtown are about. They're not about providing quality education. They are about gaming the immigration system. He says here... Um, while the federal government recently removed around 200 occupations from the school occupation list, including GEMS, such as amusement centre manager, betting agency manager, goat <laughs> farmer, dog or horse racing official, pottery or ceramic artist, and parole officer. So these were just recently removed as yeah. skilled occupations. You can still immigrate to Australia as a naturopath, baker, Cook, librarian, or dietitian. Until recently, we were importing migration agents. A lot of the um, a lot of the temporary residents on student visas who are buying apartments. Um, uh, as I said before, these are from basically Chinese investment, uh, Chinese investors. Um, the total number of foreign investment review board approvals from China was 30,611. 
By comparison, the United States had 481. Sorry, that was 13,000? So, so that was... This is uh, Foreign Investment Review Board approvals. So people from yeah. China buying property in Australia needing approval was 30,000. In yeah. comparison, the United States had 491. Mm. Mm. Uh, getting money out of China is getting more difficult. Um, so Chinese are bringing cash across in suitcases. Um, uh, Lend-Lease reported, so they're an you know, apartment builder, 40% of their apartment sales are to foreigners. Um, what they're finding is um, 30 to 40% of foreign purchases are now being cash settled. They're turning up the suitcases. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Oh, what else have we got in interesting statistics? Oh, finally, Scott. The government collects. So he's saying, well, how's our, where are we getting money from if things are so bad? Um, uh, like our company tax hasn't moved from $68 billion in the last three years. Our companies are not making more profits. Um the government collects more tax from cigarettes, that's $9.8 billion, than it collects from tax on superannuation, which is $6.8 billion, mm. over double what it collects from the fringe benefit tax and 13 times more tax than it does from our oil fields. It's got company tax was $68 billion. Mm. Tax from cigarettes was $9.8 billion. Yeah. This is, the forecast is that by 2020, we'll be getting $15.2 billion from taxes on tobacco. Four times the amount we get from the entire coal industry. <laughs> Double what we'll get from petrol excise. 20 time, 21 times more than from luxury car tax. By the way, we've got all these taxes on cars for luxury cars, high import duty, stamp duty, luxury car tax, all designed to protect the car manufacturing industry, which doesn't exist That's anymore, but the, exactly. taxes still, yeah. the taxes are still there. Mm-hmm. So taxes on cigarettes is the only thing practically floating the federal government's finances. <laughs> and this guy's saying, well, how's that going to continue? A product that costs a cent per stick to make and will retail for almost $2 a stick, how's that going to continue without creating a thriving black market? And that's the major things that I got through. But, Scott, that's a really, really worrying trend. And, dear listener, if you've got a whole, you know, don't take financial advice from a podcast. And this is not financial advice. But just go and see a financial advisor who's who's not uh, motivated to put you into property and just ask whether, you know, you should still be there or not. Just double check. Fist, glove, you two have not experienced horror until you have experienced the full weight of a hard bottom crushing you. Scott, over the holidays, I read a book called Command and Control by Eric Schlosser. And uh, good book. 
a little bit too detailed, if anything, and a bit sort of hard going at times, but it was holidays and I could persevere. And um, the book was basically the story about a, uh, a Titan missile in, um, in the Midwest in one of those silos and the maintenance crew working on it, one guy accidentally dropped a spanner and as it fell through the sort of um, cavern that this thing's in, it struck the side of the, of the missile causing a leak of fuel and um, one mistake led to another and another and another and eventually the whole thing, um, all of the fuel basically blew up and um, fortunately the, the nuclear warhead didn't detonate but it just, you know, flew a few hundred metres into the air and then just plopped back on the ground. And uh, so the book is is sort of that story and then interlaced between the history of the build-up of nuclear weapons and, and a litany of near disasters that occurred with nuclear weapons. Um, Scott, when you read this book, we're extremely lucky that there has not been some sort of nuclear accident um, just fumbled upon in the last 50 years. Absolutely. And, you know, when the the Cold War ended Mm. and the Russian archives and that sort of stuff were starting to be opened up, Mm. you know, we came very close to a situation where the Soviets thought the Americans were launching missiles. Yes, and they're, they're, I forget what they were relying on, but they were relying on flashes and that sort of stuff that were picked up by satellites. And it was actually just the sun's rays. Sun's rays were be were off roofs or something like that. And the Soviets came very close to thinking that they're under attack, and they were very close to launching their own response. Had they have done that, then Western well, human civilization would be no more. Yes, you know. A similar thing happened on the American side. So they had mm. um, NORAD, North American Aerospace Defense Command, mm. headquarters in Colorado Springs. And November 9th, uh, 1979, suddenly the screens were filled with images of a major Soviet attack on the United States. It really looked like an all-out attack and that President Jimmy Carter might have to make a decision about whether or not to respond. It was investigated very quickly and other radars showed no sign of the attack. The decision was made that this was a false alarm. It was soon realised that someone had inadvertently put a training tape um, and the training tape was of an all-out Soviet attack into a computer and the computer had presented the training tape as a real attack. Uh, You can laugh now, but, you know... At the time, you know, the world was on a hair trigger. Yes. You know, and had Jimmy Carter, had that have been reported to Jimmy Carter, he would have probably been under enormous pressure to launch a retaliatory strike. The Soviets would then be watching these missiles coming to them saying, what the hell's going on here? And then they'd fire back, you know? Yep. So Uh, what they had done, actually, in the 60s and that, because they were developing these intercontinental ballistic missiles, but... um, 
you know, the response times were tricky. And so what they were also doing was they were just loading nuclear bombs onto B-52 bombers mm-hmm. and had some in the air at all times. So, exactly. Yeah. And uh, there was an incident in 1962. One of these bombers was on a routine flight and... Um, uh, while it was flying, the pilot noticed there was a weight imbalance and they needed to dump their fuel and get back to base. And um, while they were trying to get back, the weight imbalance started to break up the plane. And as the B-52 bomber broke apart midair, the crew was evacuating, there was a lanyard in the cockpit. And it, it was the lanyard, this was the lanyard that crew members would normally pull to release a hydrogen bomb. Anyway... The centrifugal forces of the plane breaking apart pulled the lanyard as though a human being had pulled it. Oh, for God's sake. So the plane's spiralling out of control. Centrifugal forces have pulled the lanyard and the bomb is deployed. And fortunately, there was one other fail-safe sort of switch that had to be thrown. Um, So... The hydrogen bomb went through all of its proper arming steps except one, and when it hit the ground in North Carolina, there was a firing signal sent, and if that one switch in the bomb had been switched, it would have detonated a full-scale thermonuclear explosion in North Carolina. Mm. Bloody hell. And honestly, they had so many thousands of these things, and, you know, they're flying them around in B-52 bombers, and they've got them in silos where simply dropping a wrench can cause the whole thing to explode. Uh, There's over a 1,000 incidents with nuclear weapons um, and um, very, very lucky that nothing has happened just by accident so far. Well, we are extremely lucky, yeah, for sure. Mm. Did you know that the bomb over Hiroshima was incredibly crude and inefficient? When it exploded... About 99% of the uranium that was supposed to undergo the chain reaction didn't. And Is just, that right? Yeah. So, hmm. so it was only just 1% or 2% of the uranium in that bomb that actually went off. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Scott, we had the recent uh, death of Flo Bjorki peterson in uh, Queensland. And yeah, and I don't like to speak ill of the dead. However, um, yeah, I don't think we're really mourning her passing, are we? Uh, no, and certainly no. John Birmingham is not. So, no. Dear listener, severe language warning. <laughs> this will probably go for about five minutes. Uh, yeah, you might want to. Yeah, you might want to just. Uh, Turn it off until the kids are out of yeah, the car, I think. definitely no kiddies <laughs> in the car for this one. Um, so this is an article by John Birmingham who uh, had wrote an obituary for Joby Jockey Peterson uh, when he was writing for Bulletin magazine. And with the recent death of Floby Jockey Peterson, he's dug up some of the stuff that he said. And um, I'm going to quote from this article here that I've linked to. Um, because apparently Malcolm Turnbull came out and and said nice things about Flo and sad over her demise or something like that. And John Birmingham's going, are you a complete muppet? Like, mm. this is not somebody to, you know, fawn over. Uh, and 
he says here, in all of the maudlin confected nostalgia generated by Flo's long overdue demise, something precious has been forgotten. The hate. Yeah. Because there were thousands of us trapped north of the Tweed who hated that vicious, crack-brained Yahoo she married with a visceral intensity. And we weren't too fucking fond of her ceaseless <laughs> attempts to humanise him either. <laughs> There were many of us who looked back on the Bajelki Peterson era as a walking night, as a waking nightmare, when a gang of slack-jawed yokels, crooks, bandits, half-smart chances, and degenerate greedheads ensconced themselves in power by brutally crushing all opposition, debauching the public offices, and rewarding favoured cronies with a sort of naked contempt for propriety that would have impressed Ferdinand Marcus or Manuel Noriega. <laughs> This guy's got a little bit of the uh, Christopher Hitchens about him. In, you know, he does, Christopher yes. Christopher Hitchens yeah. was just scathing when he got stuck into people, and, and so does this guy. He says, as long as there is a spark of life in Australian democracy, the mid-1980s, when Jockey Peterson ruled alone, at the very zenith of his powers, should be studied, studied in civics courses as an object lesson in what happens when untrammeled power is gathered into the shaky liver-spotted hands of a stuttering proto-fascist brute with just enough rat-bastard cunning to mask his true nature behind a carefully constructed facade of endearing bumpkinery. (laughs) (laughs) These are great lines. Oh, he goes on here. He gave his wife a fucking Senate seat in the National Parliament, for fuck's sake. And the only surprising thing about it was he didn't get his complete Caligula on by sending a fucking horse down there in the number two spot. (laughs) Here we go. For Flo, I think the appropriate send-off would involve tossing her down a disused shaft in the Ipswich coal mine where she once enticed a group of striking miners to the surface with the promise of pumpkin scones and a chat to sort out their differences. And when they came up, question mark, the cops beat the bleeding shit out of them and the strike breakers charged in and her jabbering fascist husband proclaimed it a great day for all the people of the Sunshine Reich. Stay dead, motherfuckers, you won't be missed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy, oh, boy. I like this line here. Um, Where are we? Uh, before the okay, there was no Schadenfreude in seeing Bjorki Peterson humiliated before the Fitzgerald inquiry when he was unable to explain what was meant by the doctrine of separation of powers, because all it did was hammer home the truth that we'd been comprehensively ass raped by a man with the ethics of a starving sewer rat and the political instincts of a saver tooth baboon with a really <laughs> scorching meta- methamphetamine addiction. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like I said, I don't like to speak ill of the dead, but, uh, yeah, reading that, it was very powerful, wasn't it? It was very amusing. Mm, colourful language. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Right. That's the end of the language warning. You can have <laughs> kiddies come back on and listen. If any, you know, dear listener, do your kids ever listen to this podcast? It's hard to imagine. But anyway, we'll get... My nephew does. Oh, good. Like, how, how old is he? Oh, he's no, he's twenty oh, in July. Okay, yeah. there you go. Um, okay. Hello, Raleigh. How are you, yeah. Raleigh? <laughs> That's a bloody outrage! It is. I want to take this all the way to the prime minister. 
Scott, remember we were talking about uh, the increase in the number of people claiming to be Aboriginal? Yeah. And uh, and there's a GST effect with all of this because under the agreement for splitting up the GST amongst the states, there uh, there's an, a special allocation uh, if you happen to have a high, you know, Indigenous population in your state. Which is wrong. Uh, yes. <laughs> it and really shouldn't be. It shouldn't be that. It should be based on poverty and that sort of thing. So with the increase in the population of Aboriginals in places, you know, of suburban Australia, you know, in the leafy suburbs of Canberra and Tasmania, uh, funding that should be going to remote Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory is actually going to, uh, you know, the ACT in Tasmania instead. Mm. And the Aboriginal groups are looking at this and saying, well, that's not right. So the, currently the Productivity Commission has been asked to prioritise the needs of remote communities in its review of how GST dollars are distributed to the states. Um, uh, and... Um, the Yothu Yindi Foundation proposes that the definition of Aboriginality be changed so that increasing numbers of people from the south of the nation identifying as Aboriginal do not tip the scales against the disadvantaged Indigenous population in remote parts of the Northern Territory. And Saul Eastlake says, well, that's going to cost Tasmania a fair bit of money. Um, and... Uh, Aboriginal lawyer Michael Mansell says government, government funds are not currently being distributed properly and he says it should be based on need rather than someone declaring I am an Aboriginal. But I think what he was saying is people need to say I am Aboriginal and I'm in need as opposed to just I'm in need. wasn't exactly clear. Mm. But, uh, mm. you know, this is the problem. Once you start giving out money because of somebody's race, then you're heading for trouble when it should be something based on need. Exactly. Yeah. It really should be. Mm. You know, and it, it shouldn't matter what your ethnicity is or religious background or anything else. You've just got to demonstrate that you are in need and that should be enough for the government to fund you. Yeah. After an extraordinary week in international politics, let's go over to Trevor for the weekly World News Roundup. Singapore's okay. We can visit there. Absolutely, mm. yeah. They've got a great thing going with their organ donation. Mm. We, we'd, um, we'd propose this ourselves. Didn't we come up with this idea independently at some uh, stage? Or not? We've come up with different ideas, but anyway. Mm. In Singapore, all citizens are automatically signed up for organ donation when they turn 21. Those who opt out have a lower priority for getting an organ if they need a transplant in the future. Bloody good. Great system. It really is. It is a great system because you don't you don't get crossed off the list entirely, which is what myself and the Fist, I think, proposed. But if there's someone else that has not necessarily a greater need than you, yep. but has a need they go ahead of you when organs become available. And that is bloody good. It really is high time that we make everyone understand 
that organ donation is everyone's responsibility because every one of us could need them at some stage. Yep. And you've got to appeal to some selfish motivations out there to get people to do the right thing sometimes. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. You, you really do. But, you know, it's it's really great. You know, I, I think it's a wonderful law. So. I mean, you know, how could anybody argue against that, you might think? Because <laughs> you know, it's... There have been a few comments on this, which um, uh, this this one really got me. Uh, sorry, but that's wrong. The government doesn't own your body. Organ donation, whilst has benefits, and I personally would, should be a private choice, not forced. Um, it's not forced at all. You're simply giving up your line in the queue, that's all you're still going to be in the queue, but you're going to be further down that line. Yeah. So I don't think it's bad at all. I think it's great. And you're not forced to give up an organ if you don't want to. Exactly. Just opt out. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So apparently, you know, when in your early 20s, you receive a letter from the government telling you that you are opted in for organ donation automatically, and they um, include information about the program, what they will harvest, how it can help people, How's the situation like with the hardship of finding organ donors as well as your rights? And they even include an opt-out letter should you want to do so. Postage paid by the government. So sounds a pretty fair system to me. Absolutely it is. Mm. Yeah, it is. It's Yeah. Mean, meanwhile, you know It's a really fair system. I don't have a problem yeah. with it. I think it should be brought into Australia. Yeah. So this is a Facebook post that we're sort of linking to, dear listener. One of the other commentators on this is this is a John Mitchell. My only problem with this is, if it's true, is that you are punishing people for personal choices. Uh, I get the whole, if you're not willing to give up, you should be lower priority to get a donation. But that's blackmail, says John Mitchell. I mean, these are the nutcases you've got to deal with in the world. You know, as a politician, isn't it? You know, it's just somebody who doesn't get it. Um, and that's it. These, these, these people that were negatively commenting on this little tiny things being put up on Facebook, mm. they just don't understand it, mm. you know, and th that is what it is. Well, they've got so. a very skewed v view of how ethics and morality work. May God bless you. May God bless your work. May God bless the country you are helping to protect and prosper. I haven't spoken, I didn't send you this one, but I just stumbled across an article by Kenan Malik. We haven't discussed him in a while. And uh, there's a link there, dear listener, if you're a Kenan Malik fan. And basically what he says is that, you know, we have a common phrase called white working class, but we never actually use that working class in relation to other cultural groups. We don't really talk about a black working class or a, Muslim working class or a feminist working class or whatever. So it's strictly white. And um, he's there talking about a situation of uh, the education system in the UK where there was a bit of a debate um, and talking about the difficulties that white working-class boys were having in terms of reaching sort of um, average scholastic levels. Um, and he talks about different studies. I'll just quote a bit of it here. 
Then, as now, the picture was more complicated than the public debate suggested. Black pupils were not alone in performing badly, nor did they all perform badly. Three ethnic groups lagged behind, African, Caribbeans, Pakistanis and Bangladeshis. Three groups fared better than the average, and these were the Chinese, Indians and Africans. The differences were not simply ethnic. Uh, The ones who did badly came largely from working class and peasant backgrounds, whereas the Indian, Chinese and Africans tended to be more middle class. Uh, Racism undoubtedly played a part. So did class differences. But the academics and policy makers were so driven by ethnicity that they largely ignored the class problems. And uh, so, yeah, it's basically saying that we need to be looking at class differences, not ethnic differences. And class, and if you're going to look at ethnic differences, look at the class differences within those ethnicities, which harkens back to the whole thing to do with the Aboriginals earlier on with providing GST funding because you've got lots of Aboriginals, or really, you know, are they poor working class Aboriginals or are they wealthy elite Aboriginals, you know? Are they in remote hardship areas or not? So these are the things that just don't get talked about. Ethnic groups are never sort of categorised by class, whereas white people are, and if we're going to start getting some proper solutions, then we need to start talking about the different class structures rather than the ethnic differences. There you go. Absolutely. That's the Ken and Malik article in a nutshell. Not good. Not good. Not good. Not good. It's good. Except it's not good. So it's good or bad? They said, not good. I said, oh, this is a disaster. Look, it's going to be easy down the track. One day we'll be a republic, and whenever that happens... That'll be Australia Day. That'll be a better choice. Yeah, in a sense, that'll be, you know, that'll be offensive to monarchists, mm-hmm. but um, that'll be the date we choose. So then we'll have a, a ground roots protest movement among monarchists to change the date. Do you think? Well, that it's not truly Australia Day because it doesn't recognize, you know, because because it it uh, it celebrates the denial of the monarchy. <laughs> it denies our history. Yeah. <laughs> that could be it. I've said this before on the podcast several times, um, you know, given that that's the most likely result, uh, all I want is that the Republic occur sometime in the second part of the year so that our public holidays are spaced out better than what they are at the moment. So, Indeed. Yeah, so there we go. Uh, somewhere around the beginning, you know, 1st of October would yeah. be good. Somewhere around there because by that time of the October year we're crying November. out for a public holiday and uh, <laughs> we're short of them. Indeed. Mm. So, look... Uh, my sort of thoughts on the matter are that this is a dangerous thing for the Greens to be talking about and they don't recognise it in that they're falling into the trap that the American Democrats have fallen into and, and that is in catering to the sort of um, elitist um, constituency and ignoring the base of the working class, I think. I think they're starting to paint... Well, you know, I've got an article here. This one's called um, 
Uh, it's about a book written by a lady called uh, uh, Jane C. Williams, I think was her name. And, uh, yeah, Jane C. Williams, White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America. And she's written a book. The theory of it is that um, basically the Democrats and the Hillary campaign were just clueless when it came to the class issues in America. And I'll, I'll quote a bit from this article. Um, when I hear some segment of white voters, when I hear some segment of white voters being maligned as clueless, my first thought runs to backers of Donald Trump, those people who actually believe he intended to help the working class. Author Jane C. Williams <laughs> sees the opposite. Uh, it is college-educated ed- white liberals who are the clueless ones. Her new book calls them the professional managerial elite. And um, she lambasts that group as smug and condescending towards whites without college degrees, which she says drives the latter to politicians like Trump. Uh, Apparently, here's a statistic, whites without a college education constituted 45% of voters uh, in the 2016 election, or 2000. 17 like or 16, 16. Yep. Um, and favoured Trump um, to Clinton by a 31 percentage point margin. So those without a college education were way in favour of Trump. Um, she says, during an era when wealthy white Americans have learned to sympathetically imagine the lives of the poor people of colour and LGBTQ people, the white working class has been insulted or ignored. Um, she wasn't surprised when Trump won. She says Democrats in general, Hillary Clinton in particular, are really clueless about social class uh, and send very old-fashioned snobbish messages about people of a different class. That sort of idea, I think, is part of the problem of that the Greens will always have, that... The sort of things like this issue of Australia Day and putting that up front as a big one for them are just not things that are going to resonate with the working class if, if they want to get a vote. No, I So agree. that sort of thing is just going to turn people away from and voting for Do you know Greens. Brendan O'Neill, uh, the, um, the founder or one of the key people that uh, spiked online, he's uh, a number of times made the point that... Um, you know, young sort of liberal-minded people who see themselves as progressives uh, get get caught up in the, you know identity politics and and things like that. And he said it's 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 so far removed from where the real uh, struggle in in society is, which is mm. historically a class a class battle. Mm. And he says it's just a big distraction. All this identity politics taking in in a similar way taking people's attention away from what are the truly uh, fundamental divides in society which are class and warren buffett famously said there is a class war and guess what we're winning it we meaning we the rich Mm. yeah Mm. so in america it's it's obvious that the Democrats have abandoned the working class mm. and have gone for elitist sort of ideals. Yeah, in favour of uh, fashionable, yeah. uh, what they see as sort of 
progressive, for want of a better term, uh, causes. Mm. In Australia, the Labor Party hasn't quite fallen into the trap yet, but they're heading in that direction. They're definitely heading in that direction. Yeah. And then we fell in love, okay? No, really. He wrote me beautiful letters, and they're great letters. We fell in love. I came across a really interesting letter, well, an article, which is an open letter to Stan Grant from a guy called Samuel Medici. And uh, I'll read bits of it here because it's it's a good one, I think. This is um, from 6th of January of this year. Dear Stan, I'm an Australian of migrant background and mixed ethnicity. I grew up in largely ethnic communities in Melbourne's north and have lived in Darwin and Townsville as well. I have observed you in the media making various statements which I personally take issue with, in particular the divisive nature of your rhetoric and the monopoly on human suffering you seem to claim for your people. No one in this nation denies the horrors that the Indigenous people suffered at the hands of European colonists, nor does anyone expect you to not feel internally scarred by these events. The most important factor in a healing process is moving forward. Many of us in the migrant community understand things of this nature, and I would like to share some with you. He says, uh, first, I must address your them and us rhetoric, um, because Stan Grant has used a phrase such as, well, he's quoted as saying, for so many of my people, Aboriginal people, there is a deep, deep wound that comes from the time of dispossession. And this guy makes the point, uh, if, if the tribalistic sentiments were not bad enough, you feel the need to foster guilt and resentment among people who cannot change the past, as if this will somehow change the present circumstances of Indigenous Australians. He says, Stan, I implore you, you are sowing the seeds of discontent in a nation that does not need them to see them flourish. Secondly, uh, when you talk about someone's suffering with this, was the scaffolding on which you built your prosperity, um, he says that um, you know many migrants have suffered, and he talks about the Vietnamese, the Lebanese, and the Jewish community. So he says, you know, not all, you know, plenty of us have suffered, but we're not hanging on to that suffering as a reason to complain. Um, and we've got those scars. He said, um, this is the part I really like. Nothing can be done about our past, Stan, and it is not appropriate to judge a nation by its past sins. Every civilization has committed crimes against humanity at some point in its history. A far more accurate way of judging a society is by which crimes and bad practices it has abandoned. Reform and progression are what makes a society great. I think that's a really key idea, actually, that... Uh all sorts of societies have committed all sorts of atrocities. What have you done about them is the question. And Australia's done a lot to redress inequalities and, and pouring money into all sorts of programs, trying to find solutions. Absolutely. And, and we've seen for decades the government, um, you know, putting into place programs to encourage in Indigenous students to not only finish high school but to go to university to get become university qualified. Uh, such Indigenous students do get extra 
government-funded help at university. I even, when I was a student, had, I had a job for a little while as a tutor for an Aboriginal student to help her, you know, uh, improve her language skills. And, um, you know, they, they get things given to them that are not offered to other students. I, I'm not saying they shouldn't, but, um, yeah, we... we you know, we can't say that the, the Australian government and the Australian people haven't made progress on these issues. Mm. I know when my, my parents' generation, you know, they grew up in a country town in New South Wales, and in those days Aboriginal people did, just didn't live in the town. They lived in little uh, shanties on the outskirts of country towns, you know. Right. It's A lot has changed, you know, mm. even though uh, I'm not denying there, there are... Uh, instances of racism that they would experience, mm. we have made progress. And I think if you're asked your average Australian, do you, you know, dislike people of different ethnicity or skin colour for, you know, for what it's worth, I don't think most Australians really care anymore, do you? No, I, I don't think they do. No, and it's certainly illegal institutionally mm. to discriminate against Aboriginal people or anybody of different ethnicity. Mm. And for all the talk of uh, institutionalised racism that we that we hear about from certain commentators, mm. I have trouble seeing it myself. Mm. Do you do you see it? You know, personally, I think it's it's a function of remote communities. Uh, you know, I just think if you uh, remote communities where there's nothing productive mm. to do is just naturally going to cause a dysfunctional society. Indeed. So, and they may interpret that as institutional racism, whereas yes. in fact it's just a product of social dysfunction. Yes, as you say. Yeah, a product of dysfunctional communities, which are such because of where they are. Mm. Mm. Marty quit drinking, found religion for a while. I didn't love that. To be honest, I preferred him before. He had a sense of humor then. Yeah. Now, at the end of it, he says that his sentiments are firmly aligned with those of Morgan Freeman. And what I'm going to do is play a little clip from the interview that Morgan Freeman did that he's talking about here. Black History Month, you find... Ridiculous. Why? You're going to relegate my history to a month? Oh, come well, on. What do you oh. do with yours? What, which month is white history month? <laughs> no, well, no, 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 come on. Tell me. Well, the, I'm Jewish. Okay. Which I'm month sure. is Jewish history month? Uh, there isn't one. Oh. Oh. Why not? Yeah. Well, you want one? No, no. No. I, 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 I don't either. I don't want a Black History Month. Black history is American history. How are we going to get rid of racism? Stop talking about it. I'm going to stop calling you a white man. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you to stop calling me a black man. I know you as Mike Wallace. You know me as Morgan Freeman. I love it. Just stop talking about our differences and concentrate on what we have in common. Yeah, I think that it seems very simplistic, but it is it is the right way forward. I do think that we have to, I do think we have to stop concentrating on what makes us different and concentrate on what makes us the same. When you watch the you know, interview, um, sorry, Scott, when you watch the interview on YouTube, the the interviewer 
he's sort of uncomfortable when Freeman says, uh, which month is White History Month? Come on, tell me. And he tries to dodge the question by saying, uh, well, I'm Jewish, as if I'm not white sort of thing, so yeah. I don't have to answer the question. And Freeman yeah. doesn't let him go. He nails him and says, okay, which month is Jewish History Month? Yeah. I've long objected to this notion that there are white people and others. You know, there are white people and coloured people. It's the most absurd division of humanity, Yeah. you know, because what constitutes whiteness, it's really code for those of European ancestry, and that's all it is because mm. it, it's got very little to do with skin, skin tone, as we know. Some, some people of European ancestry tan extremely well mm. and uh, some people of Oriental ancestry uh, hardly tan at all. Yep. Uh, it's just a, an absurd, ridiculous, uh, incredibly simplistic attempt to isolate people of European ancestry as a, as a means of somehow um, categorising them as the, you know, the, the, the inheritors of, of human guilt. You know what I mean? Yeah, but it... It's just encouraging tribalism and groupism. And we, we are evolutionarily designed to break down into groups mm. and to and divide, divide into us versus them. Absolutely. And we've got to work hard to avoid that. And with people running around all the time saying how different they are and we're a group different to this group and you're a group different to that one, mm. It doesn't help our cooperation in our society. Not at all. And we yeah. know very well that people of a, a religious bent um, often use their religion as a marker of um, group loyalty. Uh, we see that, uh, well, I suppose most obviously with mm. Muslims these days. They talk about their Muslim brothers and sisters. And regardless of, of what eth ethnicity they are, uh, mu Muslim brotherhood and sisterhood seems to... Uh, be paramount above all other, you know, sort of group considerations or identities. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I think you've hit the nail right on the head there, Paul. I think we've got to concentrate on those things that, you know. Uh, I think, yeah, exactly. And, you know, if you look at the genetics of us all, I forget what the – it's tiny, the difference between myself and uh, an Asian person, for example. It's tiny, the percentage of difference in our genetic code. So, you know, I would have thought. Well, yeah, even better word. It is infinitesimal. You know, it's because tiny. We're anyway. something like 98% identical with chimpanzees. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, that 2% makes all the difference. Yeah. I've started reading a book called Sapiens and it's dealing with the, you know, history of Homo sapiens mm. and basically saying that. Uh, we coexisted with Neanderthals for, I think, 70,000 years. And basically that was during an ice age period. And as soon as things warmed up and we could properly move into their territory, we the did. Neanderthals disappeared. Yeah. And guess who's the most likely uh, culprit for exterminating them? Homo sapiens. So, exactly. Yeah. It would have been us, yeah, for sure. So, yeah. Just if you're looking for something I, to I feel guilty about. I think yeah. it was the white hope homo sapiens that did <laughs> The government is very confident that the court will not find the member for New England is disqualified from being a member of this House. Very confident indeed.
the leader of the National Party, the Deputy Prime Minister, is qualified to sit in this House, and the High Court will so hold. I get a chance to talk about submarines, Scott. (laughs) Did you you know that India has a $3 billion nuclear submarine? No, I didn't know that. Okay. Just here's a quiz for you, Scott. You've got a $3 billion submarine, okay? And yep. and you're going to submerge your submarine. What's the f- number one thing you should make sure before you submerge? That it can filter out the carbon dioxide, I suppose. <laughs> no, a bit more basic than that. Okay, uh, that it doesn't leak? Uh, well, close. Uh, you know, as you're about to submerge, the, dear listener, the number one thing to make sure is that you've actually closed the hatch. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yes. Oh, good God. Yes, an article here. Um, their sub is out of commission because when they uh, went to submerge, they didn't check that all of the hatches were closed and, funnily enough, got inundated with the water and knocked out a whole lot of really expensive things. <laughs> So uh, bloody hell! So that's uh, that's a major stuff up. That is, isn't it? Yeah, that's only a th- look. They had a cheap one, you know. Their submarine three billion, is three billion, uh, or two point nine billion. You know, ours are going to be four point one six. So, uh, so that was a cheap one in the scheme of things. Could have been worse. Hopefully, our sailors will be taught to close the hatch when our sh- when ours eventually arrives. Uh, one would have thought so. Yes. You have to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That is your only entrance requirement. Uh, Macquarie Dictionary Word of the Year. You're a student of English, a teacher of English. It's an odd one, isn't it? Yeah. Milkshake duck. Yeah. Doesn't gel with me at all. I read the article and I couldn't understand why the hell it stood out so much. I, I mean, couldn't either. For the life of me, I couldn't understand why why it, it attracted so much attention. So a milkshake yeah. duck refers to the phenomena where uh, somebody bursts onto the scene and everybody loves that person for whatever it is. But very quickly afterwards, something is discovered about that person and then everybody hates them. So, you know, a guy is at a political rally, member of the crowd, asks a question of a politician, um, you know, what about my poor kids, uh, my wife's, you know, dying and you're going to, you know, shut down Obamacare, you know, how am I going to survive? And says it quite eloquently and everybody goes, oh, good on you, man, that's yeah. Joe, Joe the carpenter from Arkansas, you know, and everybody loves Joe and he's, you know, he's on a morning show or something like that for the next couple of days and he's a viral internet sensation and then somebody does a bit of investigating on his Facebook feeds and turns out he's a neo-Nazi or something like and everybody hates him. So, so, so that's what Milkshake Duck refers to and it came from a guy who he just came up with a term on a tweet where he said, the whole internet loves Milkshake Duck, a lovely duck that drinks milkshakes. Five seconds later, we regret to inform you, the duck is a racist. So, uh, so it came from this guy's tweet. Oh. But anyway, so when somebody is burst onto the scene and then quickly falls out of favour, mm. milkshake 
duck. Let's hope it doesn't happen to the Iron Fist <laughs> when you finally break through. <laughs> at, at least when people say he's been milkshake ducked, we'll all know what, what's happened. <laughs> <laughs> I've said something sensible and I'll get people, oh, it's great. And then they'll have scrolled through about half a dozen back episodes and they've gone, Oh no! This guy hates refugees and Aboriginals. Oh, he hates everyone. I'll, I'll yeah. be misquoted. Most of all, he hates religious people. Yeah, I'll be misquoted. So yeah. Which simply goes to show there are nutters everywhere you look. Yeah. One way of uh, addressing it, dear listener and gentlemen, is to look at well, what are other countries doing, and. When other countries celebrate their national day, uh, basically falls into two sort of categories. Uh, newer countries celebrate their national day as a day of independence, so when they broke away from some other power that was controlling them, or older countries use some other event of special significance as their national day. Um, Denmark and the United Kingdom are among the one of the few countries that do not have designated national days. Uh, got a li- I've got a link to an article which really uh, yeah a link to an article that has a map and it basically shows the world and it's color coded as to those countries whose national day is independence related, as in fighting some sort of war or or if not a war, at least achieving independence um, peacefully, like, say, Papua New Guinea when they broke away from Australia. They didn't break away. And achieved independence. Well, um, in terms of achieving independence from Australia. Yeah, but I think the Australian government basically said, look, guys, uh, it's It's time time you stood on your own two feet. Yes, yes. And encouraged them to be independent, I think. And some would argue way too early. Some would argue that. Yeah. Um, And when you look at the map of the world... You know, the majority are that colour of the National Day is related to that sort of either physical or either uh, war-related war or peaceful um, sort of break away from mm. a sovereign power. Um, the other sort of major category would be the unification or revolution-related, where take, for example, Canada their national day was when they basically formed their constitution, if you like. Um, So uh, if we were talking about the 1st of January, a similar thing where their constitution took effect, that's what Canada's done. And um, so there's a few other ones. Uh, I think Japan is the first emperor's ascension. Um, Yes, but that's that's an interesting one. I I looked at that as well, but... Japan's first emperor is pretty much a mythical figure because that was, what was it, about 500 BC or something, wasn't it? Six. Oh, 660 BC. Very good. Emperor Jimmu. And, uh, but they call it National Foundation Day. But, look, I've studied Japanese history and I can tell you 660 BC, the Japanese people were not the Japanese people that we, um, that we know and love today. Well, what were they? Who were they? Who knows? Right. I don't think anybody really knows because the Japanese language is actually in the same language family as Korean, Mongolian, and Turkish. In other words, it's a sort of Northeast or Central Asian group of languages. And it's pretty well accepted, I think, by anthropologists that the, the Japanese that we think of today with their Japanese language 
migrated into the Japanese islands through the Korean Peninsula, and they they've probably first settled in the far west of Japan in where we now call Kyushu, and then they migrated up the inland sea area <clears throat> to what to the city uh, of Osaka, where Osaka is now. Now that became the the heartland of imperial Japan of imperial Japan in the ancient era. Mm. It wasn't Tokyo. Tokyo is a fairly modern capital, right? A recent development. But presumably, the Japanese are happy with their national day. I don't have any. Uh, oh, look, dispute. yeah. I mean, I you know, they're Be interesting to know how many countries actually are. Uh, seemingly as divided as we are yes. over the national day. But, like, my point is I don't think we should put too much store in a, a date like 660 BC for the Japanese because it was a very primitive um, place in those yeah. days. Um, here's an interesting one. Trivia question, dear listener. Spain, for what reason does Spain celebrate its national day? That's an interesting one. I didn't mm. look at that. It's the 12th I couldn't of, tell you. It's the 12th of October and... Their national day celebrates when Columbus discovered America in fourteen. Really, isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's their national day. Wow. Yeah, because I suppose they see that as the beginning of their empire, don't they? Of their empire days. Yeah, I guess so. The you know the the glory of the empire days when they had most of quite a lot of South America and Central America and Mexico. Yeah, but it's interesting. The discovery of another country is their national day. That's really quite odd, isn't it? Mm. We've got a link to an article uh, where the Sydney Criminal Lawyers Association interviewed Marion Maddox, and she uh, has written some great books on religion in Australia. She's like she is the authority, Marion Maddox. And in that article, she said that uh, in the past, um, the religious Christian religious groups have not wanted a Bill of Rights style of um, right to religious freedom because they knew it meant that other religions would also get those rights and they didn't want them to. So they wanted to be able to criticise uh, Islam and... and uh, Judaism and Hinduism. Yes, yeah. and... Um, so they, they weren't willing to take a, a freedom of religion, Bill of Rights type of um, um, power because they knew it would apply to all religions. But in more recent times, they're starting to talk about that sort of, uh, of leaning towards wanting that sort of thing. And she's arguing it's because they can see that they're really losing ground and they'll now put up with other religions being um, equally empowered, um, but at least it sort of will, will, will prevent all of them from losing more ground and more power. So that was her analysis of, of the initial objection to a Bill of Rights-style protection of religious freedom and more recent desire to mm, maybe think it's a good idea. Mm. So that's Mary Maddox, was her view. Sounds about right to me. Yeah. 
Yeah. Iron fist and a vibe with love. Real shit. You might remember the story of the Indian uh, submarine where the hatch was left open and causing enormous damage. And we, at the same time, had a story about the secret and how if you wish for something, then according to the secret, uh, it would come true. And funnily enough, um, dear listeners, on our website, we have an ability to leave a voicemail message and... uh, and it's great when people ring through with a voicemail message. And we've been fortunate enough to receive a voicemail which explains the Indian submarine incident. So just sit back and listen to this. Goodness gracious me, it is always dive, dive, dive on this submarine. Oh, I want the sun on my skin and the wind in my hair. Why can't I have this? Oh, what's this book? The Secret? If I just wish, I can have. I, Raju Singh, wish for an outdoor life, for the sun, for the wind in my hair. Uh oh. <laughs> this. I think you should expect uh, communication from the <laughs> Indian embassy in Canberra over that. That's extremely offensive. Oh, Raji Singh, you have excelled yourself. On this yeah, thank you very much. Is it Raji Singh, was it? Raji Singh. Raji Singh, thank you so much. That's really brought a warm feeling to my heart. Oh, thank you. Raji, I listened to that about three times and really <laughs> wet myself every time. It was fantastic. Yeah. So, um, oh, I don't know. I, you know, we're offending people all the time. Like the, the Finns have offended and now the Indians. Yeah. There's a know. lot more Indians in the world than there are Finns. You know, you know, I'm thinking I might offend the Chinese just so that I can apologise later. I like Chinese. I like Chinese. Clearly I was listening to too much Monty Python over the past week, but... Uh, no, you're going to have to watch yourself, Fist, because you're, you're, you're offending our future overlords and masters. So. <laughs> I've got to be careful. An article that I've got a link to about Adam Smith. So, Scott, you would have done economics, having done I did do economics and that sort of stuff, and I hadn't read this about Adam Smith until you sent it through to me. Yeah. yeah. So he was famous for his invisible hand, that the market was the best way of determining how, how you know, the economics of our society should work. So rather than the sort of Soviet style deciding from the top what to central produce plan. and sell, yeah. central plan, leave it up to the market and supply and demand will sort out the best, most efficient use of resources. And he's held up as being um, oh, an icon of the sort of free market um, neoliberal sort of worldview, Adam Smith. But uh, this article um, says something that I never knew, Scott, which was that Adam Smith was actually quite worried about the power of the the trades at the time. Mm. They distorted the market 
and yeah. they had control over the political players and worked the market to their own advantage. So mm-hmm. he was actually a loud advocate of a problem that he couldn't see fixing, which was that vested interests in control of of certain um, aspects of industry had control of the politicians and were therefore distorting the market. So yep. Um, so yeah. Um, it was very interesting that you go into that. He, he's dead. He's dead right. You know, this is a guy that was writing in 1776. Was the Wealth of Nations, you know, and he has his work has been co-opted by the neo right. There's no doubt about that. But you know, it says it quite there that um, oh, I've lost it now. Anyway, it, it says there that the the trades, as he called them back then could end up controlling the market. So he's dead right. He, he was a prophet. He was a prophet more than anything else, wasn't he? Was. he? Yeah. Yep. And the way that powerful interests could control political decision makers and have a distorted market. So, yeah, that was Adam Smith, which I had no idea that he'd made comments along those lines. So, yeah, so dear listeners, you know, regular listeners will know, you know, the story of breeding chickens yeah, as layers. Told and, last yeah, time. Yeah, ago. exactly. So... Thank you uh, to our patrons. You, you're doing the right thing, and and you're not a psycho chicken. I can't seem to face up to the facts. I'm tense and nervous, and I can't relax. This Colonel Sanders' job is getting me down. A crazy chicken chasing me all over town. Psycho chicken. would stick in your head dear listeners it does stick in your head doesn't it great contributions this week dear listeners messages left right and centre Raju Singh and Brett and the psycho chickens and everybody else thank you for your contributions because it does make a difference knowing that there are people out there listening and and getting into it so good on you so I think that'll do us gentlemen be back again next week we'll talk to you then thank you so much for listening bye now Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast, and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like, grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf, on their phone, and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon, and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? 
Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.